Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Loki Strange and Crimson, attorneys at law. Sometimes you need more than a lawyer, you need a touch of magic. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben Siders, and with me here, as always, is the other guy, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, again, as the captain of the, as in the, captain of the Enterprise. We're up to episode 25, Kirk, quarter century mark. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Uh, I don't know. Does that like, you know, an anniversary? Do we need to exchange gifts? Yes, we do. We need to get, like, a cake or something in here. All we have is water. <laughs> um, so today, well, well, first of all, I finally saw Deadpool 2. Um, those of you who are, well, first of all, those of you who are new listeners, welcome, and we're happy to have you. Um, <coughs> for those of you who are new, and I think we've got a bunch of new people, Kirk, we looked at our analytics for last month, and we're through the roof. Yeah, it seems like a bunch of people decided you want to start listening last month, so we don't know if that had something to do with May, and maybe it was a May Day call for help. Yeah. But um, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is, it definitely seems like a bunch of you guys are doing it. You're going back through the books, people are going back through the catalog, the old catalog listening yeah. to everything. This was our best month and since our first month, when we had six episodes on launch day, and uh we're only doing two a month now, and we did almost as well as far as listenership. So, yeah, and definitely, uh, if any of you guys out there are regular listeners and told all your friends to listen, we obviously appreciate that as well, as we always put at the end of every episode. Yeah, thank you. The The, the word of mouth is uh, is how people find us the best. Well, uh, so I saw Deadpool 2, finally, and uh, those of you who've been listening for a while will know that Kirk saw it before me and gave his review. Like the first time uh, I think I've ever seen a movie before, Ben. Yeah, that doesn't usually happen. My wife and I are really into movies. So we try and get out to them as quickly as we can. But uh, she's a big Ryan Reynolds fan, so I knew we'd see that one uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> and uh, and we did, and uh, I, I pretty much second everything you said, Kirk. I thought it was uh, a little too plotty in spots, like the first third um, kind of was uh, not incoherent. It just didn't quite all fit together for me. But once they got past setting up what the plot was going to yeah. be and really got it going, it was everything you want in a in a Deadpool. I, I think they needed to introduce X Force, and once they sort of introduced X Force and got going down that, even though I mean the X Force didn't last very long. Yeah, I was going to say I think I know now the scene you're talking about where you're like they're, they're not going to do that, or oh they are going to do that, like. It's, it's so over-the-top and ridiculous. I think that, uh, you know, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I truly think the parachuting scene and the X-Force parachuting <laughs> scene is probably the best scene in the movie just because it's so completely over-the-top. It really is. And it ends completely, like, logically simply with just Domino well, being, is there a problem? Yeah. <laughs> well, once you see what they're doing with all these characters, so I, I don't know, do you want to get into spoilers at this point? Oh, we can wait. We can wait and see if we have yeah, we'll wait. Basically, yeah. once you see where they're going with the characters in that scene, e- each each subsequent action that happens, you're you're they they accelerate the um, absurdity, absurdity, uh, and the, uh, the the graphicness of what's going on. So, if you haven't seen it, go see it. You'll know what we're talking about. We'll we'll hold off on discussing it in any more detail for a little longer. For, so, so those of you who haven't seen it have a chance to see it. Yep, um, and then. I've seen Solo. Kirk hasn't yet. Yeah, um, was, unfortunately, I was on a family vacation when Solo came out. How dare so I you? I wasn't able to, uh, to actually go. Yeah, we had, I'd, we'd taken the, our, our kids and everybody, and we'd gone down to Florida. So we really couldn't go see it because they were much too intrigued by the beach and the pool. So to go how, see it. How do they go outside when you can stay inside exactly. and watch Star Wars? You know, I mean, it's, uh, I'm raising poor geek children. They want to actually go play outside. It's very bad. Well, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give some thoughts towards the end here if, I, if we remember to do it. Um, but we'll save, like, going through our predictions for a, a later episode. So we've been... We've been in copyright land uh, lately, and then we were trying to break away from that and, and get more towards other forms of IP. We did uh, trademarks last episode, yep. and what we do before that one? That well, was we, really, we were copyright before then. Really, yeah. that trademark episode, I think you know we, we sort of did this different format. And I think we're going to stick with that same format today. But patents where, this time. Patents this time. But we really kind of jumped on it and said, let's talk about trademarks more as a legal topic than necessarily you know yeah. applying sort of you know, explore, with IP and explore like a practical example of how trademark rights play yeah. out in the real world. And, and in, in some sense, what we did is we geeked out about the law instead of geeking out about a geeky topic. That's what we're here for. Um, I mean, it's what we do. It's what we do every day. And so there are times where, you know, we, we enjoy doing that kind of stuff as well. And that's one of the things I think we may even do a future of this show as well. We may also start geeking out about other topics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just things that are of interest to people that are, you know, not necessarily something that's particularly, you know, science fiction or fantasy or anything along those lines, but are topics that people geek out about and then we can apply law to. We need so to do a whole start- episode just on beer at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there will be an episode on beer. If they, For those of you who don't know, Ben and I are both enormous beer geeks. Um, we, you know, both drink way too much beer. Enormous describes the scale of our geekdom, not necessarily of our, of our, of our figures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so we're going to talk about patents today. And patents, I'd say, Kirk, patents, I think, are probably the least understood of the major forms of IP. Would you agree? I think in many respects, yes. I think the, the problem you bump into is people probably understand the law of copyright the worst. But the reason being is because they think they understand the law of copyright law, and they just don't. They run into it the most. So I think you have more opportunity to experience it firsthand. But the problem is you just you draw conclusions about what the law must be based on what you see people getting away with. Yeah. But that's not necessarily what the law is. It's yep. just a lot of unenforced infringement. That's the way I'd put it. Is I think the, the biggest problem with copyright is if people are familiar with copyright, they just have a sort of misunderstanding of exactly what yeah. copyright is because copyright is very complex and it tends to get simplified. It tends to get yeah. overly simplified. I think when you talk about patents, the vast majority of people know there's a patent system. They probably heard of a patent, and it probably ends there. You know, they have some idea that it maybe connects to inventions and better mouse traps, yeah. and they know there's some sort of exclusiveness to it. That if you patent something, that nobody else can do it, and you can make them pay you. And I think a lot of that comes from just how patents are described in popular culture and popular yep. media. Like there was that Duck Dynasty show yep. about some some hunters that invented a new duck call. I guess it yeah, was. It's a duck call. Yeah, and and made, and made a fortune off of it. And people are just people just assume if you have a patent, like people know they're expensive. Yeah, they know they're hard to get. Both those things are true. True, but they mistakenly assume that once you have one, you are now rich. Yep. That's not true. <laughs> Definitely not true. There's also one of the things that I think you bump into is that actually, quite frankly, mass media gets patents wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. Even more so than, because they like to use patents, I think, in you know media presentations. There's a lot of movies about patenting. It's a lot of movies about invention. Yeah. And some of them, you know, I think are pretty accurate. I mean, if you guys want to sort of have a good idea of, I think, uh, you know, what like patent lawsuits look like and kind of a little bit of how patents get used, flashy genius the movie about the guy who invented the intermittent windshield wiper is a great example of like some real things that kind of like the way it happens my, my best my favorite with that movie actually is the courtroom scene because the courtroom's totally unimpressive which if you so it looks like a real courtroom it looks like a real courtroom <laughs> and that's the thing is like people are used to these courtrooms being essentially the supreme court building of the united states and the reality of it is the vast majority of them look nothing like that well i think most people's exposure i mean unless you've actually been to a real court for some reason your typical exposure to a courtroom is usually like a municipal traffic law type court yeah. We may have to show up and, and pay for a ticket or something like that. But those aren't even real courtrooms. They're often just like like meeting rooms in, yeah. in the city hall or something. Yeah, and so I think that that's the kind of thing is you get into, you know, like, that's, that's one of the things I like about that movie is that it gets you a little bit more real of, like, this is kind of the way patents work. And they get into some stuff related to the patents, some details of it. I think another good one is Joy, the movie Joy. I think it's some good ideas of, like, the way patents can interact and the problems that can exist with patents. She has a problem in conjunction with her patents, and I think that's a, a valuable thing. I haven't seen either one of those movies, um, actually. But one of the ones I like to pick on, and I have to love to pick on, is the movie Spanish Prisoner, which is actually a great movie. Um, it's a kind of thriller, and it's a, it's a chase thriller. But the whole premise of it is this guy who needs to protect his patent application. The whole premise of it is completely out to lunch. You don't actually have to do anything that he thinks he needs to do in order to get the protection because he's already filed for the patent application and his concern is somebody's going to steal a patent application and the answer is you can't. Well, that's one of those common misconceptions I think people have about the law. I was talking to somebody back when I was in law school and you know she was talking about how she uh, her, it was either her or her son had a lease to an apartment somewhere and they were in a dispute with the landlord and she said, but I think I got him because I have the only copy of the lease and I, I shredded it so now, now it's gone <laughs> and I'm like well you, you've destroyed evidence but the, the, you know the contract is not the physical piece of paper it's, it's the exchange of, of, of agreements yeah. right and, and you, you know unless you're going to get up in court and perjure yourself and say no I never signed it then, then the, you know, the lease is still legally enforceable. It may yeah. be hard to figure out what the terms are. But exactly, are, the terms of it are and stuff like that. But yeah, that's, I think you get a lot of that, quite frankly, in, in legal stuff. And it's, I guess part of it is is it's the Hollywood portrayal of law is, is I think, some of the same way the Hollywood portrayal of medicine is, yeah. which is they take you know the interesting 1% and make it 99% of the plot. Yeah, how many legal and, shows have you seen? Like, I used to watch Boston Legal a lot. Yeah. Uh, and in every episode, the same thing happens. James Spader's character finds a new client while he's at court that morning and has has a trial scheduled by 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. The one that, that I sort of remember, happens. I don't remember what the name of it was. It was only like three episodes. It was called like The Associates or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was about these associates in a New York law firm. And the thing I still thought was the most hilarious part of it is the two associates shared a corner office in a New York law firm. 
they did it because they wanted a lovely New York backdrop in the background. Yeah, filming on, filming on location, you better film it. Yeah, you better film the location. But of course, the idea that like two associates would share a corner office in a large New York law firm is pretty much ludicrous. <laughs> um, unless that was the only office they had available. But it's one of those things where, it's, again, it's just kind of, a, I think you see a lot of that kind of stuff where so much of stuff gets played around with. Let's correct and, some misconceptions about patents. Yeah, so I think we can go ahead and we can talk a little bit about a few misconceptions about patents. Um, I think there's a few things you mind. First off, we've talked about intellectual property, and particularly in the copyright and trademark realm, we've talked a lot about how a lot of these sort of attach automatically. You get a copyright when something's fixed in form. You get a yep. trademark as soon as you use it in commerce. Patents are not like that. They're the only one that's really kind of not like yeah, that. Yeah, the patents are the, are the only, the one sort of form of IP that not only require an affirmative step to get, but actually required what's called a prosecution or examination process. You don't have a patent right until the government, you basically go through an entire process and the government agrees you get one. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is only about 50% of the applications survive that process. So this is very different from copyrights, as you said, where once I write something down, if it's copyright eligible under the law, then I've got a copyright to it as of that moment. Patents aren't like that. Once I write it down, even if it is patentable under the law, you have to push it through this prosecutorial process with the government and get them to agree. Yeah, and that's, I think, the big thing with it is that you can very readily have something which is patentable and not patented, Um, you know, which is universally agreed to be patentable. I mean, you could... And part of it's because sometimes they're purposely not. Some of it's because they're just, you know, there's resource dichotomies that say you can't get there. Mm -hmm. But that's an important difference is that the distinction between patentable and patented is a very large gap, whereas the gap between copyrightable and copyrighted is an extremely small gap. It's basically coextensive. It's basically coextensive, not quite, because, I mean, you have to prove that it's copyrighted yeah. to get the copyright. Enforceable copyright, as opposed to, yeah. in the abstract, yeah, there's a copyright, but you, can't, copyright. You, know, you lost the papers, you can't prove what it was. <laughs> exactly. And so stuff like that, like, what's the copyright in your, your favorite contract here? Yeah. That's where the poor man's <laughs> copyright comes from. Mail it to yourself, and now you have a date showing when it was fixed in a tangible yeah. medium of expression, and... But there's no poor man's patent. Yeah, though there is, a, there are a lot of assertions about poor man's patent and the idea that, again, you can mail pages to yourself to get a poor man's patent. The, 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 thing, the big thing to keep in mind, and what I tell people a lot of times in patenting, is 90% of what you usually hear about patenting is probably wrong, actually. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're talking about something which is mass media or which is portrayed in entertainment or anything along those lines. A or you read on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of it's just also because, you know, it doesn't work well in in media and entertainment, one of those I remember picking on is it's there was a there was a TV show for a while that actually had somebody who was a patent attorney, and they sat in an office and behind them they had all the litigation law books. A patent prosecutor never uses litigation law books, yeah. so why on earth would you have them in your office? Um, and you know it's those kind of things where you just get into this. It's done because lawyers always have racks of books behind them when they're depicted in media, because it looks good and it's expected. The same as bartenders are always shown cleaning a glass. I mean, isn't that mm-hmm. you know like Ebert's like required yeah. introduction? It's an empty bar. Nobody's there. <laughs> nobody's been poured a drink yet. We're still cleaning. Glassware. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's usually because the bar just opened because it's like the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's those type of things I think you get into it. Um, a few other things to keep in mind about patenting. The patent concept and the idea of protecting inventions is actually an extremely old concept. I think a lot of people look at it and say patents are relatively new. It was and, one of the first things that the first Congress did, and they didn't even yeah. invent the concept. It was in the Constitution, and it goes further back than that. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, you know, English concepts and, you know, sort of, you know, Victorian-era England, and the idea that basically, what I think the, the best way to say it is it's the people sort of came up with this idea that you're entitled to things you come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and inventions are some of that, and that's where I think it kind of gets into inventions and the idea of what it is. Now, most people, that is right. When people think about patents, they tend to think of them as being associated with inventions, and that is correct. Patents are associated with inventions. It's just a lot of times what people think of as an invention and what is an invention are actually somewhat different as well. well I think people have, um, strangely enough, sort of antiquated ideas of, of what is and is not patentable or even a policy level what should or should not be patentable. And, and this is probably also rooted in the origins of the patent coming out of the Victorian era. You know, what passed for technology at the time? Obviously, we didn't have software. Yeah. Uh, and, and the concept you didn't have genetic of, engineering. Yeah, or, you know, that kind of stuff just wasn't really known. The practice of medicine was in its infancy. We had, what, Beaches and, and stuff like that, but you know, we had those for George Washington. Let's see. Yeah. So, so what constituted technological advancement uh, in, in Victorian England? You're mostly talking about uh, really early uh, industrial revolution type things, machinery, um, equipment, things you can yeah. make. You know, m- muskets, things like that. There's a big connection to the idea of being things. Things. I think that's one yeah. of the things with it. And, and the reality of it is, is that patents are not connected to things; they are connected to inventions. And you can come up with inventions which are not things. For example, if you can turn lead into gold, that is an invention. It's a method. It's a process. It's a method, and that's patent. 
cannibalize a method. Yeah, that's and those are sort of I think a few of the things to keep in mind in conjunction with patents is that patents are directed to inventions, but inventions oftentimes are broader than people think of as being inventions. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when people are actually thinking about what is an invention, what they're actually thinking about is the product that came out of the invention. Yep. Um, so sort of a good example of it is that a lot of people think of like, the greatest invention is the light bulb. In many respects, the light bulb was not invented, and it's not what's claimed in Thomas Edison's patent. What We knew that we could make electric light before then. We just didn't know how to make it stable. And mm-hmm. so what Thomas Edison needed to figure out is what was the specific filaments and the combination, and how did you specifically make it work? And it turned out it was the particular filament in a vacuum, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of how you create the vacuum and things like that. That was a lot of what really was the product in the far end, that became the product in the far end, but the invention was basically figuring out what was the filament and how to make it last long enough. And I think people misconceive that the inventor process is you sit down with all the known laws of physics and all this prior research and you look at it and say, well, what logically makes sense based on all of this? <laughs> but but to a large extent, if, 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 if that's what you do and you come up with the obvious conclusion, you know, the way the patent office works, if it's obvious based on what is known, then it's not a a it's actually not invention. an invention, yeah, and that's uh, which is again, weird because then we're rewarding people. I mean, on a level, don't we reward people who just luck into things that weren't expected to work? <laughs> yes, I mean, and that's I think the thing that's really great about the patenting system is it's the number of inventions that effectively are happy accidents. I mean, it's the old you know joke: how was nitroglycerin discovered by accident? Um, you know, and you really have that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of the greatest inventions we think of in history effectively are accidents. Now, a lot of times, what it really is, and the way I oftentimes refer to it, is really what invention is: is problem solving. Yeah, And it's creative problem solving. So what you have is you have somebody who looks at the world and says, there is a problem. You know, and I mean, to use the, sort of the, 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 the stereotypical example, there is a problem. I have a mouse in my house and I would like it to go away. Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is, what do I, how do I solve the problem? Step well, one, I get trap the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Pied Piper solution also works as a method. But mm-hmm. if you're looking at it and saying, I don't want to be there, I don't want to have to construct the mouse, you build a mouse trap. By building a mousetrap, you have invented something that solves the problem. And that thing didn't necessarily exist before, and it was not necessarily an obvious solution to doing what you did, because you can look at it and say, well, the obvious solution was you go get your flute and you, you do the Pied Piper route. Yeah. Um, but that, which I believe the Pied Piper is actually truly myth, too, that never actually happened. But the, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing that you get into you know, with, with it is what, what is those kind of things in invention? And that's what you really get into in patenting. And the issue that you also get into with patenting, and I think it's also an important part to keep in mind about patenting, is patenting involves very clear sort of public policy associated with it. One of those public policies is that when you have this kind of invention, you have the solution to the problem, you tell the world what it is. Yeah, we want to encourage sharing. Yeah, we want to actually So that we can rip sharing. you off. <laughs> and a lot of people in the, in the course of doing it look at the patent and say, wait a minute, don't patents discourage sharing? And the whole goal of the patent office is to encourage sharing. And in exchange for sharing, what they say is they say, you can have limited protection to products that are related to certain aspects of that invention. And that's, in patent lingo, the, the part of the patent that has legal meaning is the claims, which is mm-hmm. these just horrific legalese sentences at the end of a patent. Um, you should probably tell people, if you ever read an actual patent, first of all, you have to distinguish between patent applications, which are also published, and actual patents. A patent application is not enforceable, yep. really. Uh, a patent is, if it's still valid, and the part of the patent that actually describes what you have the rights to is the very end, the claim section, like Kirk just mentioned, which is, as you said, these horrific contorted <laughs> English sentences yeah. that, are, that are kind of hard to read. An individual claim must be one sentence, and keep in mind that claims can be multiple paragraphs long. Yeah, they can be. They often are. And I think when, when I see people you know, sort of complaining or, or even uh, applauding the patent system and what's covered and what's not covered, they're usually cited to the specification, which is the rest of it. Yeah. But that is not necessarily what is claimed. So that you know, you're required to disclose all this stuff in the patent because the whole purpose of it is that once your patent expires, everybody else has to have enough yep. information based on your patent to do exactly what you were doing in the way you were doing it. So you have to describe what it is. You have to describe how to make it. You have to explain how it works. Not completely, but in enough detail that somebody who knows what they're doing in that industry could practice the idea that yep. Themselves. And that's uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that the, the patent office is really a very big repository of information of sort of prior human invention. And that's what the patent office is supposed to be. It's part of its purpose. And it's actually a very valuable resource. Um, it's one of those things that you can sort of, you know, get... If you're interested in certain things, it's amazing what you can learn from the patent office. And I'll just use sort of a personal example as to what it was. Um, I, I took a class in law school which ended up resulting in me studying certain things which are 
on the edge of illegal. Um, <laughs> what it was is I was I was actually getting into a lot of how you protect electronic money transferring. Hmm. So basically, what was the legalese related to if your ATM screws up? Um, what, how does the law relate to that? One of the things you bump into is that a lot of things related to money um, actually involve mechanical solutions. So basically, there's technical solutions to it. Because of that, I got into the basics of like, what do you learn about how you can basically damage mechanical solutions? The best example for it is, is if you'd like to know how to pick a lock, you can get into the U.S. Patent Office and learn exactly how a lock works. Mm-hmm. Because most locks are patented. Um, and so it's one of those things where you can go in and you can look at it and say, hey, this is how the tumblers specifically move in this brand of lock. Knowing how those tumblers move makes it easier to manipulate them to how you want to do them. And people don't realize that like that kind of information is in there. Similarly, like a lot of the um, like the antivirus companies have a lot of patents on how they detect incoming attacks and thwart them. It's all laid out in their patents. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's one of those things that you know there is a lot of very valuable information in the patent office. And it's important to point out to the fact that that information is publicly available. Going in and figuring out what's in a patent application in no way is remotely a violation of anything. It's you not even copyrightable. Yeah, I mean, by law, you cannot copyright what's in a patent. Yeah, unless there's certain limitations for certain forms of computer code. Yep. It has to be what's yep. called a mask, uh, a mask use. But it's it's one of those things where, yeah, the vast majority of a patent, you can do you know anything you want to with. You can review it. Which, and by the way, is a home, a home decor tip. If you're ever looking for, for true public domain works <laughs> that you can use to decorate your home, um, uh, go to the patent office and, and look for design patents on things because all that stuff is public domain. It's a publication yeah. of the U.S. government and under the Copyright Act. It's not it's not copyrightable. Yeah, then there's a lot about that since he has one in his office. I do. So uh, back in the uh, a quick aside, back in the the eighties, uh, after Return of the Jedi came out, uh, Lucasfilm um, got design patents on the aesthetic appearance of a bunch of the toys that came out. So there's yep. a design patent on a uh, Wicket the Ewok, on the Lambda class shuttle. Uh, what else do we see? There's the Adat Walker um, and some other things. Yeah, got it. I would say there's a Yoda. Yeah, there's even a Yoda one. The, the problem, though, is that the, the the proportional dimensions of the toys differ from the actual vehicles in the movie to some extent because you've got to fit the action figures in. Yeah. If you were to make it to scale, the Adat Walker would be huge. Yeah. So, but so the Adat Walker kind of looks like a puppy, like the head's oversized. <laughs> it looks funny. So, uh, so my wife got me for Christmas one year, though the uh, the shuttle Tiderian one, which is about yep. right proportionally, which was a huge toy too, if you remember it. Yeah, and it's, but yeah, it's hanging in my office, and it's public domain art. So, yeah. which is weird because they presumably have a copyright to the shuttle as portrayed in the movie. But then they've got this design patent, so yeah. I can copy the patent expression of the idea. But if I printed a still from the film, presumably yeah. that wouldn't be okay. And yours literally is. It's like three. It's three of the images from the, yeah, the, from patent. the design that collage. Patent, yeah. um, you know things like that. And this, it's amazing stuff you can find out there. One of the ones it's for anybody who doesn't know. I collected Transformers for a number of years. Uh, the Transformer toys. Um, the Transformer was patented, and you can actually go and review the patent, which describes how Optimus Prime transforms, because that's actually that. the one they used as the example. That's cool. Um, so there's a lot of sort of stuff like that, and that's actually interestingly enough a utility patent. Not a design patent. Um, we'll get into a little bit of that, the sort of d- distinction here in a minute. But I think that's the thing to keep in mind again about patents is it's the, it is this this public disclosure, this public repository, and that's a very important part. Patents also have a relatively short term compared to a lot of other forms of IP. We've talked about you know copyrights lasting for hundred years, trademarks lasting potentially indefinitely. Patents are twenty years. Like the absolute that's longest it. the patent can ever go is twenty years. That's the longest they've ever lasted. Yeah, it's twenty years from the date it's filed. So it's one of those where the day you file it, the, the clock starts Clock's ticking. running. It can get extended a little bit for essentially delay by the patent office that co- that costs you terms. So basically, if the patent office, the patent office looks at it and says, and the way the law is written, if you should have gotten a patent quicker, but for the fact that the patent yep. office screwed something up, they'll give you some extension. They'll give you some for extension. So the, the best example is if the examiner rejects your patent, you go on and you win on appeal that says that the examiner was wrong. You're entitled to the time it took you to go through the appeal because the examiner was wrong. So the yep. examiner shouldn't have ever required you to go through that process. And you shouldn't have wasted that term with a yep. patent that's not pending. It, it gets to be really problematic, and we don't do any pharmaceutical work, really, but uh, when you get into pharmaceuticals, you have a whole series of, of trials you have to go through before you can get the product to market. And you know if you file your patent early enough, which you pretty much have to, um, then you know there's a risk that you could blow through you know 10 years of your term just trying to get a product to market. And then if you find out during that process that it's got you know negative side effects or the FDA won't approve it, then you've got a patent on nothing, basically. Yeah. You put all this money and flushed it down the toilet because you can't do anything with yeah. it. Yeah, and that's, and again, we t- I talked about 50% of patent applications survive the process. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is patent applications themselves are also valuable. I mean, patent mm-hmm. application is something which has not been patented, which 
another thing to keep in mind is that to patent something, it can't have been described, um, either directly described, which is called novelty, or obvious in light of, which is the obviousness requirement, mm-hmm. something which is already out there. The primary repository the patent office uses to determine whether or not a new patent application is patentable is the patent repository yeah. itself. They don't, as a rule, they don't go Google things. No, they, they do can. a little bit, but they, but, they but can. They often, that's not where they start. And we just, and we just you, you just used Google as a verb again based upon <laughs> our last discussion. Well, I literally meant go use Google. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, we, we just discussed that in the last episode. If you didn't see the last episode, go talk about the last episode where we talk about the issue of verbing yeah. trademarks. Um, but the the thing that we you have with the, the sort of patent office, and I think the thing is being a repository of information, it's a very valuable repository of information, and in some sense, it allows you to follow the sort of, you know, the great quote of, you know, if, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood upon the shoulders of giants. The patent office gives you the ability to go and look and see what's out there. You know, you can really see what does people come up with, what are out there for patents, and that's a very important part of the patent process. Yes, you get a 20-year monopoly on what you claim in a patent application. Mm-hmm. Now, what you describe, what you claim, and and believe me when I say we could spend the next 10 hours discussing the difference between what you describe and what you claim. <laughs> um, I have done CLEs on those kind of presentations. They are multiple-hour CLEs, like, you know, stuff like that. CLEs continuing legal education, by yep. the way, for those of you who don't know. Um, but it's it's one of those where you really have that 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 need to tell the world about here is this repository of information. To the effect, and it's something to keep in mind, like you talk about sort of interesting patent stories, um, and I don't think I mentioned this one on the show before. I know Ben and I have talked about it a lot, but one of my favorite stories, and actually for you guys who don't know it, I'm a bit of a World War II buff. Um, I always have been. When the United States entered Berlin, actually at the end of World War II, one of the first things the United States did was actually go and raid the German patent office, only to discover that the Soviets had already been there <laughs> and had already done the same. Um, there's an interesting thing that comes out of it, though, which is we now know one of the patents that actually the United States got access to from the German patent office related to their jet engines for their jet aircraft. Um, for those of you who know World War II at all, there, there's, there, it was known that the, United, that the Germans had created uh, jet aircraft by the end of World War II. They weren't really sure how to use them. They were not using them as fighters. They were primarily using them as bombers. It was an incredibly expensive technology to manufacture, stuff like that. But it turned out that there were a number of patents that had been filed on that sort of jet technology. Um, one of the things related to it was actually to a jet which had circular wings. Um, and if you get online, you can actually find a copy, uh, you usually find them, of the German patent that actually shows a, a figure of this jet. Well, it's a German patent to a jet aircraft with circular wings. At that point in time, the Americans' testing facility for advanced aircraft was Roswell, New Mexico. Interesting. I've heard of that place. Um and maybe some things associated with circular aircraft. So there, there's a, a sort of fun theory, I think, in a lot of you know patent worlds as to is Roswell really a German stolen patent? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, it's those kind. There's fun stories like that, I think, associated with the patent office that you get into. But again, that's where you look at it and say, is this um, a valuable sort of part of a value part of a, of a government of a society, I think the answer clearly is yes. And you look at it again, you look at wars throughout history, there's a lot of discussion of people either destroying patent offices or raiding patent offices to learn technological advances or to keep other people from having them. Well, and it's the alternative to trade secret, right? Because if we don't give people an incentive to publicly disclose these things, other than they're, you know, they're just being generous, you know, if you have a commercial or competitive market advantage arising out of something unique that you possess yeah. and nobody else knows about, you know, what's your motivation to explain to everybody else what you're doing and how you're doing it? Yeah. You know, and, and people didn't back in the day. You just keep it a trade secret and keep things under lock and yeah. key. Now, it's, it's wouldn't probably... It, wouldn't it have been nice if Stradivarius would have patented his violin? Yeah. <laughs> because we don't know how he made it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then, uh, so the other thing about the patents that are interesting is that, although we usually think of patents as being things with great commercial value, that's not necessarily true. Yes. And anybody can pursue a patent on basically anything as long as it's new, useful, and not obvious. Yeah, and I think a lot of times when people joke about it, they joke about the, the things of saying, and it literally is those three requirements. Just, you know, those are the only three requirements stating a patent. New, useful, and non-obvious. And the threshold for useful is pretty low. Yeah, and that's, I think, the big thing is the threshold for useful is pretty low. Um, and a lot of people, when they make fun of patents and things, they look at things and say they aren't useful. And the answer to it is, is essentially useful simply means it has a use. Again, sort of one of those fun stories, um, when there was a lot of questions as to whether or not organisms were patentable. Um, the Harvard mouse, which mm-hmm. is a, a mouse that basically gets cancer easier. Um, there was a, they were trying to patent it, and there was an argument as to whether or not it had a use. Because it's, it's, all it was was that it got cancer easier. 
Mm-hmm. And so the question with it is, is does it, you know, does it have a use, something like that? The patent attorney got creative, actually, in arguing to the, the office, and this didn't fly, but it is a decent argument. Um, and in the end, they actually agreed it did have a use because of its, its intended purpose, so to speak. But his argument was it's useful because it can be used to be fed to snakes, <laughs> uh, to pet snakes. I mean, it's one of those things, you look at it and you go, wait a minute, but that's the criteria for use. I mean, the use is, it's a snake food. Yeah. That's useful. I mean, anything has a use, effectively, if it can be put to a use. Pretty much anything other than, than, than refuse, unless, unless the purpose of it is to throw it out, you know, yeah. and garbage is not patentable, but yeah. and, unless and, anything else is. And that kind of thing, and it's, it literally is, does it have a purpose, does it have something which can be used? And that purpose, we look at a lot of times when we say it's silly, it's, you know, it's crazy and things like that, but at the same time, the patent office usually doesn't put that high of a bar on it. Now, recently there's been some changes, we've talked a little bit about some stuff related to the Alice decision in conjunction with the patent office, and we're not going to get into the details of yeah. that And here. that's not really about usefulness so much as, as under what circumstances computer software should be patentable, that's a whole separate yeah. topic we could cover. But that Let's happens talk to about, fall under the, use, the useful standard, yeah. and so that's where, you know, and you may bump into some stuff where people say the useful standard has become harder to meet, that is true in certain cases. So let's talk about some things uh, that, that have been, <laughs> been patented, and this list may be hard to get through without getting a case of the giggles. And, and the thing about it is, and I think one of the things to put a caveat on this in front of it, you know, you look at all these patents, you look at these things, and you go, really? Like, they did it. <laughs> you have to keep in mind, I think, a lot of times, ludicrous patents. What we look at and say, this is a product which is totally useless from a commercial point of view is still inventive from a scientific point of view. You can look at it in some sense and say, that what we're talking about here in some sense is, is like the, um, it's not the, not the Darwin Awards, the Ig Nobel Awards <laughs> um, for scientific research. You know, the purpose of it is, is not to say it wasn't scientific research. It's basically saying it's, you know, that it wasn't correctly performed or anything like that. It's basically saying it probably shouldn't have been performed and it probably yeah. shouldn't be performed again. Um, but it's still scientific research. It's still valuable scientific research. These patents are still inventions. These are still things that somebody came up with and they thought were important enough to patent. They're also things that may very well have spawned later inventions and we don't realize that they associate with this. And yes, I just did use the word spawn on purpose <laughs> <laughs> because of some of the things we're going to get into here. Um, Let's talk about some of these. Uh, I just I just Googled like a list of silly patents, and this is what came up. And a lot of them involve animals. For some reason, when you combine animals with technology, uh, <laughs> hilarity ensues. So the first one's not. It's the, the Nokia vibrating tattoo. Yep. I assume this has something to do with like letting you know when you've got a call. Exactly. It's your tattoo vibrates and you get a call, presumably. Uh, is your phone not enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, but again, it's one of these things you can kind of see it as like, hey, it's a way to do it. You don't have to have anything. You don't have to, mm-hmm. you know. And again, you look at that and say, is that silly? Yes. Would anybody buy it? Probably not. At the same time, how do you make a tattoo vibrate? Yeah, that's right now interesting. I don't suspect a single one of our our listeners could really tell us. And this maybe one of you works for Nokia. How you would make a tattoo vibrate? But you can go look at that in the patent office and say, here's how you could make a tattoo vibrate. Is there future technology? Is there other technologies other that could grow out of that? Other yeah, applications that, that grow out of that. Again, the patent office is a repository of knowledge. That's knowledge that's been put there as to how to make some a tattoo vibrate. Even if the product makes no sense, <laughs> the technology is still interesting. Well, yeah, and, and a lot of these, you can just, just based on the nature of them, and you'll find out shortly, you can tell people who thought these up, you know, were, were, were the, you know, the future Ron Popeils, you know, <laughs> they're like, this is going to be big. It's the new, I mean, all you have to do is look at his pet rock, right? If you can sell pet rock, I can sell our next one, the high five machine. <laughs> I just kind of think, who likes high-fiving so much that they need a machine that, like, you're sitting at your computer and, like, you get a good kill in a game and hit the button, the high-five machine, high-fives. I can't even think of why you'd want this. Uh, the, the next one has slightly more use, and it's a bit of a relic of its time, the portable nuclear bomb shield. Yep. <laughs> Have you ever seen the drawings for this? I haven't it, seen it. It, like, comes with a shovel so you can dig a ditch. To, like, I'm trying to understand on what circumstance you need the shield, have it with you, but also have time to use it before you're incinerated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's, and that's uh, I think, a lot of times when you also have into these, a lot of times these things, when they come to them, the, the practicality of them is that while they may solve the problem, it may not legitimately solve it. One of the ones mm-hmm. I remember, which... Uh, well, I, that's I the thing. Said, they don't have to actually work, right? Well, they work, but they don't necessarily have to work for sort of what we they don't think have to is their well, purpose. Right? Yeah, like, they don't have to work yeah. well. So one of the ones I remember was actually a, literally a pair of wings that you strapped to your arms, and it was for escaping a fire from the second story of a building. And this is back when buildings weren't very tall, so you would have done a lot of it. <laughs> but the, the inventor was actually very particular in pointing out that the wings did not allow you to fly, even though you flapped them just like bird wings. The point was to slow your descent enough so you didn't die jumping mm-hmm. two stories. 
And it's one of those things like you look at it and you go, is that you? Yeah, there is some use to that. We look at it and say, wait a minute, you're patenting bird wings. Like, yeah, really? That's, that's they ridiculous. can't allow you to fly. But the argument for it, the purpose behind it was this no, it's to slow your descent enough that you don't kill yourself trying to escape a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. There's some, that's interesting. You know, again, you kind of get into it. Was that really a good solution for probably how to solve it? Probably not. There's probably better ways yeah. to solve that. But. Well, how about, how about the next one, which, which is probably particularly <laughs> useful right now? A method patent for how you can use a comb over to conceal baldness. This is one of those. This, I, might, this one might be being infringed. Right? <laughs> yeah, it might be being infringed. <laughs> this is also one of those where I think you get into method patents and people talking about methods. A lot of people would look at this and go, wait a minute, how could that possibly be patentable? Now, part of it was when was it filed for? And then specifically, this is something where we're looking at and saying, but everybody does comb-overs. But this More is a particular like, way yes, to do a comb-over. That's the over. key to this, is that the claims in this are going to be particular to a particular methodology for doing something, which are going to go to it. One of the ones I, I always remembered, again, is sort of you know silly patents being talked about. Um, there was actually a method for making toast that a guy filed for, and Don't he didn't file bread? for it. <laughs> well, he didn't file for it as, as being something to be silly or anything like that. It was it, it allowed you to make toasting extremely quickly. That was the goal of it. So it used extremely high temperatures without burning the bread. And it was one of those that had gone through and and was basically going to be patented until somebody realized his temperature range that he'd disclosed covered making toast on a campfire. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those things where you kind of look at it and you say, yeah... It's it's obvious to make toast so to, to do it at that range by doing it on a campfire. What he really had was a machine that that basically simulated that, but he Which was pursuing different. it as a methodology. Yeah. And that's where you get into all these times these method patents and the idea you can patent a method. Can you patent a method for turning lead into gold? Yes, you can. If you can really do it, you yeah. can patent a method for turning lead into gold. You have to think about with a method patent, who is the infringer? And this is where method patents sometimes, I think, uh, the patentees run into trouble is, so I get a patent on a comb over, and you can say, well, yeah, there's millions of men infringing my patent when they look in the mirror and comb their hair every morning. How are you going to know? Yeah. And how much money do they have to pay a license for practicing that patent? As a practical matter, it's not really worth that much. Yeah. And that's that's the thing that a lot of times these patents, again, what people bump into is they look at these and go, why did somebody bother going through the process of getting this patent? Now, sometimes it's because, quite frankly, they just want one. You know, they want to actually go yeah. through and get a patent. You want somebody to hang on the wall. You know, there are only on the order of 300,000 patents issued per year. That's a relatively small group when you think about the fact that that's how many people are born every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you've got a relatively small group of, of people who get who get a patent in their lifetimes. Um, a lot of people just want to be able to say they've got one. They did invent something that they are a patented inventor. Probably there's nothing wrong with that. Even no, if what you invented has no commercial use, you did still invent something. And the patent office does validate that. They do come back and say, yes, this is legitimately an invention. I want to read the next one because I'm not sure how this works. A snake walking leash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's a the animal is itself a tube. What do you attach the the leash to? <laughs> but but again, then you talk about the idea of what is the invention. Obviously, you have to attach a leash to a walking tube yeah, or moving that, tube. That's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, this is an extremely hard problem to solve. And again, you know, I doubt any of our listeners, unless we might have the inventor of this on here, um, could actually tell us immediately how you would solve that problem. You know, that's a difficult problem to solve because it's you put the leash on the something on too tight that constricts the the mm-hmm. snake, you would hurt it. You know, and so that's a you get into these like inter- these interesting technical problems with in some sense silly solutions. I like to see the method patent on this. How do you convince a snake to go on a walk in the first, <laughs> the first place? place? There is that issue. Yeah. Okay. Next one, gerbil shirt. This is literally a vest covered with gerbil tubes that you can <laughs> so you wear carry around. Gerbil around so your hamster or your gerbil. Can can play on it. The, the, the Google that one, gerbil shirt. Um, the, the the pictures are funny. Uh, so our next one, dog chastity belt. <laughs> that's kind of self-explanatory, and the silliness is also equally <laughs> self-explanatory. <laughs> I mean, Bob Barker, maybe. I mean, you're talking about you know the the proliferation of, of stray animals, yeah. and you know there's a and way. You don't want to carry out neuter, you know, neutering. Yeah, I mean, neutering is, is invasive like and expensive and, and dangerous. So okay, bird diaper. <laughs> Yeah, so, you have a bird that you don't want to keep in a cage, so you don't want to put the newspaper all over your house. Uh, body bike. This is one where there's a back wheel base, a little platform surrounding a wheel, and you kneel on it. Then you lean over and put your hands on an axle that's got a front wheel between it. And then I guess it's motorized or something. I'm not really 100% okay, sure. Yeah, but then your body is the frame of the bicycle, and you just steer with your hands, which kind of looks like the cover of a Lady Gaga album. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Okay. Uh, okay. This <laughs> truly one. digressed. We have now compared a, a, a patent to a cover on Lady Gaga album. Okay. This one, I'm not even sure how it works. A motorized ice cream cone. <laughs> Just let that sink in. I don't even know what to say about that one. Uh, this one uh, also um, toilet snorkel. <laughs> 
What are you doing? Do you need a toilet snorkel? The, the part of that probably is it's probably something specific. There's nothing to do with snorkeling in the way we're no, it's probably it, but... snorkel more like in the sense of like a, like a car snorkel. Yeah. Uh, you know, toilets have to have you know a way for the air to get out. Yes, they that's do. In, the, in the air trap. So, but just the, the words itself are, are funny enough. The one we're going to spend the most time talking about today, though, is the patent for. Godly powers. Yes. Now, and to keep in mind, when we're saying with patent for godly powers, that it literally says it's a patent for godly powers. Yeah. Or when we're actually a patent application yes, for patent, a patent on true, godly yes. powers. So every once in a while, uh, we have the, the the privilege of running into somebody with a special combination of having a very strange axe to grind and just enough money or energy to grind it and not enough discretion or judgment to know that they probably shouldn't. Yep. And godly powers is one of those cases, I think. Uh, and, and what makes it interesting is that... Uh, you know, in these cases, lawsuits often get filed, and in this case, a patent application is filed, and you see the government sort of forced to deal with the absurd and to force somebody who doesn't quite understand what they're doing and 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 push them through the the Byzantine halls of the patent office, yep. and it's 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 very arcane and that's, regulations. That's a very important thing to keep in mind here: is that the process of getting a patent, as much as it's something any person can do, is actually very particular. It is, in many respects, very archaic. Um, it's it's a very Byzantine legal process you have to go through. And that legal process, if you know how to navigate it, you just do it. It has its own language, it has its own way of doing things. And for those, you know, for those of us who are patent attorneys and navigate it every day, you're just used to it. it it's the same way as, you know, you were to go through any sort of, you know, particularly, you know, specific form of job or activity or something, especially which has been around for a lot of years, there are things that you just have to know how to do. And we, we oftentimes comment of, you know, one of those things where you get sort of uncomfortable is when you have to navigate those types of things you aren't used to. You know, it's it, why are you uncomfortable in a foreign country is because you don't necessarily understand the customs and what you're supposed mm-hmm. to do. And you're worried you're going to offend somebody without even realizing you've offended them. Um, and, you know, or break a law you don't even realize exists. And those kind of things, you know, are out there. The patent office is a place where you really have a lot of this type of procedure. And that procedure is put in place because 99% of the time, it simplifies everything. That's for the orderly administration of, of the Patent Act, yeah. basically. The problem with it is there's the 1% of the time when it doesn't, but you can't change the rules. The, the government's not allowed, the Patent Office isn't allowed to come in and say, look, we know what this is. This isn't somebody who really understands what the rules are. We know the mistake they're making. In many respects, the patent office can't tell them here's how to fix the mistake if they're not going to tell everybody else how to fix the mistake. Yeah, and they, they try not to in the patenting process, you know, go easy on uh, self-represented inventors. Yeah. and and, and no, they, they do. There is actually some representation <clears throat> that they they they. They give them the benefit. They give a, a self-representing inventor a much more the yeah. benefit of doubt than they give an attorney. Yeah, and, and judges do the same thing. Well, this so the Godly Powers case involved a person named Chris Roller, R O L L E R, from Minneapolis. And I should say at the outset, everything we know about this comes from the actual documents on file at the Patent Office, which are all a matter of public record, and the very little information I could find by googling the background of this. So, uh, Mr. Roller, if you're listening, um, you know, and if any of this is wrong, please feel free to correct us. Uh, we're just going on what we could find. And, the, and honestly, the answer is not much. Um, Mr. Roller's from uh, Minneapolis, and I saw one blogger saying that he might be a former nuclear engineer for the Navy, maybe. Um, but nobody's really quite sure. I couldn't find much on him and his background. But we do know that he uh, filed a patent application in 2005 seeking the exclusive right to use godly powers on planet Earth. And this presents our first real problem with Mr. Roller's application, which is that the United States Patent and Trademark Office has limited territorial reach. Yes, it, it's, it doesn't cover the entire United Earth. It covers the United States and certain... Some territories. ...territories and things underneath it. So, like, you know, a U.S. patent, I believe, is valid, is valid, valid in Puerto Rico, for yeah. example. Yeah, so as a threshold matter, he's asking for something the government has no authority to grant, which is the exclusive right to use, doesn't have to be godly powers, anything on the entire planet. Yep. You know, as, as much as we may sometimes feel the, to the contrary, uh, America <laughs> does not control the entire planet. Yep. Um, the other thing about it is, and I think the thing with it is, it's, he's saying exclusive right to use godly powers. Remember, we, I also mentioned that, you know, patents are related to this distinction of the claims of what is it that you've come up with. Mm-hmm. 
the, the statement godly powers is not necessarily sufficiently descriptive to really say what it is. You know, does he mean the ability to generate lightning? Does he mean the ability to generate, you know, tornadoes? Does he mean the ability to grant miracles? What exactly do we mean by godly powers? Um, and what God are we referring to? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if we talk about, you know, pantheons of gods, like Greek gods, each god had his own godly powers. Mm-hmm. You know, arguably if we talk about sort of, you know, you know, individual deities, then you can get into the point that they may have multiple powers. Well, these are the, sort of the threshold issues the patent office has to deal with when they get this application. The first thing they have to do is classify it. So all of the technology at the patent office is organized into this uh, this hierarchy of, of topical categorical yep. classifications where you know telecommunications go here and uh, mechanical devices yep. go here. Where do you put godly power? And just, just as a sort of amusing point, the reason why that's all classified that way is because it used to be when the patent office used to search its own records, you had to go and search underneath those particular <laughs> classifications. That was how you knew where to look. So these classifications have existed effectively since the beginning of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. They add them or they subclassify them and stuff like that. So it's one of those where everything has to be classified as this because it's necessary for the Patent Office to be able to locate things. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like looking at it and saying, how do I give a a Dewey Decimal Code to something which isn't a book but I've been told has to be in the library? Um, That's kind of what you have here. And they had to come up with doing it. So they eventually did come up with a classification to put it. I believe they do have one classification which is effectively miscellaneous just to which is probably where this had to go. And and Mr. Roller represented himself, it, it appears, and sent a lot of correspondence to the patent office, Not not most of which did not comply with the rules and regulations for when things come in. Um, and and his, his original application was very brief, and he essentially claimed that at some point somebody had granted him godly powers and made him a godly being, that he was God on earth, and that other people who were, were, were using his powers, and he claimed um, variously that um, various medical advancements were a product of the use of godly powers and that the people who had come up with these things were in fact infringing on his powers and had not actually invented anything scientifically. They were just using a pretextual scientific explanations to hide the fact that they were infringing. And uh, the, But the examples he gave of, of what constitutes the use of his <laughs> godly powers he, he could have selected anything, right? You could have said people are trying to cure cancer and diabetes and, and, and cause a, a lighter-than-air craft to fly. Instead, he gave the examples of breast augmentation and frying chicken. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, part of the thing that you sort of get into with this is it's, you know, when you, when you think about this, and again, we're giggling about it, as to what it but the patent office looking at this, you've got to look at it and say... They've got to take it at face value. Yeah, you have to take it at face value. How do you deal with the idea of somebody coming in and saying that it's, it's a godly power to do breast augmentation? When, when we know that, you know, what it really is, is at least traditionally a silicon bag. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you reconcile this? How do you deal with this as to what it is? How even to the point of saying and understanding what it is he's trying to claim, what he's trying to say. And that's again, I think the key point of this, this is why we get into the idea of why these rules exist, mm-hmm. is because you're trying to get in to make sure that everybody's talking the same language. You want a structure to make sure that everything's taken with equal seriousness, whether it seems to on the surface yeah. merited or not. If you were filing an application from in the patent office in the 1860s for a, a bomb you can sit on that will launch you to the moon, it would seem equally absurd. But that's what a spaceship is. Yeah, exactly. And and you know those types of things, or <laughs> the rocket in many respects. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and that's it's those types of things where you get into it where it's when you're towing through these kind of patent applications, you look at a lot of these silly patents. One of the things you really see with it is how does the government deal with them? Because you have something that's so far outside mm-hmm. of sort of the standard bounds of the rules that everybody's expecting, but you have to apply the rules as best you can. And that's what you see in these cases. Is it's And, and what we administrators, we think, I think, are the funniest things you bump into with these patents is the patent office applying these rules to things. Or trying though, to. Or trying to. Even these patents we talked about earlier, the high-five machine, you know, the yeah. shirt, things like that, these are things the patent office applied the rules to, and these were found patentable. Well, Godly Powers was not, and Mr. Rawler had a, an interview with the examiner that was assigned to look at his case, and that examiner supervisor for obvious reasons. And uh, and you know, like everything else that happens at the patent office, it's all a matter of public records. So if yep. you know where to find it at the PTO's website, you can, and and the and the PTO will prepare a summary of the interview. And the interview uh, basically says that Mr. Roller was strongly encouraged by the examiner to, to seek counsel to represent his interests, which I, I thought was a very humane and... There actually and, is a paragraph at the patent office you're supposed to use if you believe that the person representing themselves doesn't really understand the patent rules. Yeah. There's a specific paragraph they're supposed to put in the response to the application encouraging them to get counsel. Like, there's no age limit, right? You can be eight years old and invent yes, something. You can, and, and an inventor you can, has no age limit. You can be a minor. Um, you do have to be human. That is one requirement yeah. in conjunction with it, but... Um, 
That's, that's a whole the, separate podcast <laughs> of aliens or Neanderthals. Exactly. And uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Roller, I um, mean, he supplemented his case over time and added more detail. And and I'll, you guys can Google it and, and and read about it. It's, it's an interesting case. He also sued uh, David Blaine and David Copperfield over the misuse of his powers. Um, he also took up arms against a church, I think, and claimed that uh, it may have even been the Catholic Church. He claimed the Holy Eucharist and the trans the, the, the transformation into the body of Christ was uh, an usurpation. He said uh, of, of his godly powers. So there's it's. It's all very silly. Uh, it's all very funny to read about it. Um, but it should be noted, it seems clear to me that either Mr. Roller is a fantastic prankster yep. uh, or, or he suffers from, from some sort of, of mental illness. And I don't want us to, to, to come across as insensitive to that. I've got, I've got two autistic kids, so I understand uh, those kind of things. We're, we're, more, we're more amused here by the PTO having to, to, to deal with this. And, and I thought, and if you look over the papers, you'll see, they, they handled Mr. Roller with, with a lot of humanity and a lot of dignity. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's important because, not only because it's just important to respect that you've got somebody who's, who's, who fir- firmly believes something and is trying to protect his rights and clearly feels like yep. he's been wrong. Right, and and you don't want to just be dismissive out of hand, and and you don't want to uh, you know look at it and and just do the de minimis. They wrote up formal responses to all of his office actions, yeah, and they did their best to understand what he was saying and how he was trying to say it, and just point out to him why under the Patent Act you have to take everything he says at face value. You have yeah. to assume when you examine this that he really is a godly being with godly powers. The problem is godly powers aren't patentable under yeah. the Patent Act, and and if it is because he's a godly being, they're inherent. He didn't invent them. Yeah. You know, so I think, and I think there is a reason for this is, and I think it's an important thing to point out to the patent office. The patent office does a very good job of this. Of, and they have to try to, to find prior with, art, too. Yeah. Of trying to deal with, you know, these kind of things coming in. And it's good that they do. And I say it in particular because I've had people come to my, you know, into, into my office that have filed their own patent applications and have gotten multiple rejections. And a lot of times what it is is because they just simply don't understand claim formats. So yeah. they've written a claim which could never be granted. You know, as a patent attorney, I can take one look at it and know immediately it would never be granted. Simply because its form is so off, it could never be granted as to whatever it is. That's what happened here, too. If you look yeah. at the claims, I mean, Roller um, you know, wrote his claims, and he did in later versions try to correct them, and actually did a pretty good job yeah. of getting it to match the format better. But it's obvious he's not familiar with the process, and that's that's got nothing to do really with with his uh, you know unconventional subject matter. Yeah. Uh, the process is hard and opaque, and we see uh, people who are, are you know perfectly within their faculties who still can't quite figure out how yep. to write claims correctly. And, and I've had plenty of people who've come to me, and again, they've had applications, they filed their own applications on their own, or they've used other attorneys, whatever it is. But in, in the end, what the issue with it is, is that they're, they're not doing a good job of drafting these claims, these legal requirements. And, you know, some of these people have granted patents. Some of them have multiple granted patents mm-hmm. now. Because once they got inside the the sort of realm of what was expected at the patent office, it became very clear what they had clearly did meet the requirements of patentability. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those things where the way they'd happened to write it when it first came in, it wasn't that clear to the patent office because of the way they do the examination, because of the way they do these processes. And that's an important thing, and I think that's why... When we look at it and again, poking fun at some of these sort of silly things in conjunction with it, it's, it's very good that the patent office treats all these things equally. The well, because you, you really never know who's actually got equally. something, right? Yeah. Like, like this one seems silly on the surface of it, based on how it's written. But like I said, if if you know, it, the first person to come up with something that's truly innovative often seems crazy. Yeah, you know, and and it's well, not. I mean, Tesla was seen as basically being insane by most of his people. He arguably was insane. Yeah. Um, and yet we look back now and say the man was a genius when it came to multiple things that he invented. Well, there's the fine line between genius and crazy. Right, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, and you see that kind of played out here, especially if if this background is true that Mr. Roller was a former nuclear engineer at the Navy. I mean, that's that's a pretty solid position. You don't get there by not knowing what you're doing, yeah. you know. So, so it's it's an interesting story, and I won't I won't go through all the details of, of the prosecution because it is lengthy and there's a lot of back and forth. But just Google the case; you'll see people talking about it, and it, it's it's an interesting case study in in how the government has to deal with you know has to deal with situations like this, and this has come up in other situations too. There's a, a famous instance where. Where, um, I believe a woman tried to sue God, yeah. and so she filed a lawsuit, followed all the rules, and then it goes to you know the subpoena gets issued, uh, or the summons gets issued, and then the sheriff has to serve God, and the government has an obligation to conduct a diligent search within its jurisdiction and try to find him. Yeah, and that's what they said after diligent search of of the, of the residents of this county, God cannot be found here. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of an interesting way to state it, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things like that. You actually study in law school. I mean, I remember studying a case in law school having to do with the requirements of a complaint, and the issue with it is you have to state something 
something that essentially how you've been wronged. And the the line that got put into the complaint, if I remember in the law school book, was that the person has lied. So uh, is 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 he was saying that he defamed him was the the mm-hmm. basic thing in judgment. And the line was is that he said so much bad things about me, his eyes are brown. Um, <laughs> and it's it's one of those where you know you know exactly where that that came from and things like that. And they ruled that that was sufficient to say that. A lie had been told. Yeah, you're alleging defamation. Basically. That was alleging defamation, and it's it's one of those where you know it's it's one of the natures of the legal system. It's one of those things that doesn't get talked about very much at all. Well, and I think we have a misconception that it's overly rigid, and it is very rigid. It's but very rigid. It's very rigid to contain, in my opinion, the antics of, of attorneys. Often, yes, it is. It, quite frankly, it is to contain attorneys from being overly zealous. Yeah. Because that's our job. I mean, yep. it's in the ethical rules to zealously advocate for our clients, and I think, and that's the nature of the adversarial process. We, you know, in, in a lot of countries that that don't work like ours as far as legal systems go, the the judge has a more active role in mediating disputes, whereas here the judge is more like a referee, and and the attorneys and their clients are 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 you know both advocating for opposite sides, both have this zealous advocacy op- uh, uh, obligation, and the idea is these two sets of people both working hard to prove their cases will between the two of them. Adduce enough evidence of the truth that a jury can make a decision and and a judge can apply the law. In other countries, the judge has a more investigatory type type role, yeah. and and the attorneys are more just representing people to navigate the system as opposed to engaging in advocacy. Yeah, yeah, we are a very advocacy based system in conjunction with attorneys, and even the patent office. It's an advocacy based system. You're supposed to advocate for your client, you know, things like that. And again, I think that's a lot of those rules are to contain the advocacy yeah. within reasonable bounds. But we have and somebody who's representing themselves, and that consideration doesn't apply. The Courts do tend to take a little bit of a step back, go a little easier, and help them understand yeah. what they need to do. Because not everybody can, can afford a lawyer, and just because what you're writing may seem silly on the face of it doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. Yeah. And, and like I said, everything is kind of taken seriously until you give them a reason not to, even yeah. something like godly powers. Yeah, and I think that's the, 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 a good place to end with the godly power, powers patent yeah. is to basically point out the fact that you know this was a seriously filed patent application. It was taken seriously by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. It was ultimately denied. Yeah. For patent protection. It's something you can look at and you can say, hey, it never should have been applied for in the first place. That's arguably true just because of the the nature of what was being applied for. I think had you have consulted with a patent attorney, they would have told you this was unpatentable subject matter. Yeah. But at the same time, it's one of those things that because it was filed, it did go through the process and it was treated the same as every other patent application is treated. It was just one that they had to, some in some sense, force the system to deal with. Yeah. And that's a valuable thing. It's not thing a square fit, sort yeah. of, for the shape of the of the procedures. And it does make you wonder, though, if somebody ever did invent real magic, <laughs> try to patent it, what would they do? Yeah. Presumably the same thing, yeah, right? I mean, like we, we did the time machine case. I mean, nobody's ever come back in time with a real time machine that we know of. Uh, but somebody claimed to and, yeah. and presented the plans, and the patent office took that one seriously as well. Yeah. Or the old joke, one, actually, from uh, I think Star Wars Four, where it's the uh, they, they have the transparent aluminum, and the guy just hits save on his computer yeah, after that was the, uses it. Star Trek. Star, Star Trek. 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 Yeah, that was the. San Francisco one where yeah. they went back in time and yeah, that's right. Well, let's talk. We're going to uh, switch topics here to design patents, and then we'll wrap this up. Because design patents are weird because everything we just told you about patents is basically true for designs. Except, I guess, the usefulness element is a little yep, bit there different. Is no, they, they have to be non-useful elements yeah. is what it is. It's exactly the opposite. And design patents are directed to what they call elements of industrial design. And for those of you who don't know what industrial design is, it's best to think of it as product design, like what does a product look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what design patents are directed to. Interestingly enough, a lot of, I always I comment regularly that design patents are sort of the weakest and strongest patents out there. They're weird. Because they're the strongest. If the person needs the design, they need the design. And they're the infringement of a design patent, if proven, can be very, very powerful. They're the weakest because they're the narrowest, but that's also what makes them the strongest, is it's, if they're infringed, they're infringed. Like, there's just no getting around it. Um... But Whereas with utilities, you can argue like, well, what we're doing is slightly different, and you can kind of uh, quibble over whether the words apply and what they mean. But for a design case, you're not describing what the rights are narratively or in prose. You literally just have pictures. Yeah. And if if your thing is the thing that's in the picture, then that's it. Yeah. And it's and usually about it is there's actually some requirements in certain courts that you actually turn the pictures into words. And how, you know these pictures are complicated. I mean, how do you describe a car? <laughs> in words, I mean, that's you know, just like, tell me what the shape of a Corvette is in word. Pretty. Everybody knows exactly what the shape of a Corvette is. Yeah, you know, I mean, but how do you describe it in words? I mean, it's going to take you pages, mm-hmm. you know, to lay this thing out. And then the question is, is, is how do you go with this? The cool thing I think about design patents, when we're talking about sort of the thing of silly and fun patents, and we mentioned it in conjunction with the one on your wall and stuff like that. Design patents because they're directed to the appearance of things. Design patent drawings are really cool. They are cool. 
I mean, and they're done in a very formalistic, very rigid style because that's what's required Front for the patent side, office. Front side, back side. Yep, I, should, I should take pictures of my shuttle one <clears throat> and put it out there. Although you guys can probably just Google it, but um, um, yeah, it, it looks neat. We'll try and tweet one out after the after the episode today. Yep. What's what? Uh, what's interesting is the interplay between the designs, which cover how things look, and copyright, which you can also get copyrights to how things yep. look. And we kind of alluded to this earlier with the, with the, uh, the the shuttle. You know, Lucas presumably has copyrights to all the things to to the toys themselves as sculptures or yep. as as three dimensional works of art. But then you have an expression of the same idea in a design a patent application and the patent itself, which is by law not copyrightable. So what are the rights here? I think the thing you get into with patent rights, and what other times I describe it is it's kind of a copyright in steroids. Other times I refer yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> a design patent, one, it gets you a different court. It gets you a different type of proceeding. It's a patent infringement proceeding. But the right is to something which is effectively not confused you know, with the design and what the appearance with it is. What you discover when you get into design patent litigation and anything related to design patents is what the scope of a design patent is is really unclear. Mm-hmm. You will find cases where you look at two things and say these things are different and they're found to be the same. And you look at two things and go, these things are the same and they're found to be different. And they use what they used to use, I think it's still, it's gone away now, but they used to use what's called the ordinary observer test. Yeah, that's still what it it's is. It's still ordinary observer test. And yep. they, um, the, the thing you bump into with ordinary observer test is it's literally like if you look at the picture and you look at the product, do you think they're the same? Which sounds like what? Likelihood yeah. of confusion? It sounds like a little bit of confusion. Wait a minute, that's it's trademark. We just get it. And, and so you, you get into this kind of thing is where exactly do these things fall? What I think the, the real intriguing part about design patents are and the real value of design patents is the value of design patents is to recognize that you can invent something which is effectively pretty without it being useful, mm-hmm. but that the pretty actually is the reason why it's useful. Yeah. And that's, I think, the cool thing about it is you, you look at copyright, in many respects, copyright is saying, I'm going to copyright something which is pretty. Patents are going to say, I'm going to copyright something which is useful. Design patents are effectively saying, I'm going to copyright something which is useful because it's pretty. Mm-hmm. And it gets that sort of middle ground as to whatever yep. it is. And they don't last as long. Um, yeah, 17 we, years from date of filing as opposed to 20 years. They actually just changed that. It's, it, it used to be 14 years from date of issue. They just don't change it to 17 years from date of filing. Yep. Uh, another issue, now, there was a time when the Copyright Office also, if you'd already pursued a design patent, if you later tried to copyright the same thing, there was a time when the Copyright Office would refuse the registration under a doctrine called election of protection, where you could only have one or the other, yep. which for most designs isn't a big deal. But then if you abstract that a level, what about software? Yeah. Software is, is, is copyrightable, we know that. Software per se is not patentable, but inventions that are methods implemented via software are... Maybe. S- yeah, so... <laughs> So, so you know, or, or can be at least can be very better. And so I've you know the, the question comes up with software if the source code is copyrighted, uh, and, we, and you sometimes include source code in, in a patent application. So does that does that eradicate the copyright on the source code? Well, there is actually a specific thing where you can put source code of a patent of a copyrighted source code into a patent, and it doesn't waive the copyright in it. Um, basically, you put it in as a figure, and it waives. You can reproduce the figure as itself, literally or as part of the patent application, but you can't take the code and do anything else with it. So mm-hmm. you can't take it and type it in because that's not reproducing it literally as part of the patent. Um, and that's how they protected it. That's how they actually made it so that you could put certain copyrighted things into a patent application and do it. You have to submit that what you're submitting falls underneath that and is entitled to it. It's routinely granted. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things that's kind of interesting. That's the one place where copyright is granted. And even there, they limit it and say, you can still photocopy the patent. And you cannot stop you from doing that, even though that has the source code in it. So you could hang um, it on your wall, like I did with my. Yeah, Star you could definitely Wars hang show. the code on the wall. So you wouldn't necessarily want to put in, you know, the the decryption matrix for your, you know, highly <laughs> encrypted, you know, DVR system. Oh wait, somebody did do that. Whoops. <laughs> Not in the patent office, but obviously those kind of things do happen. Well, we've been going for an hour, so why don't we move on to our our questions? Um, we've got one here from Ed that we received on Facebook, um, actually quite some time ago. Uh, I don't think we ever got around to directly answering it. So uh, Ed says, here's my question. The law is about legal persons. Rights are human rights. How human would an alien need to be before we recognize it as a person under law? Uh, This kind of goes back to our animal question. He says there's a lot of animals whose cognition is close to humans in one way or another, simians, corvids, and octopodes, but they don't have legal rights. Uh, What about Neanderthals and Homo florin? That's the hobbit one. I can't pronounce that. It's it's the, (laughs) the the hobbit genus they found. Yep. Um, 
Ed goes on here to more talk to talk, to talk more about this, but uh, the, the question is if basically if, if we discovered other another hominid species that you know was capable of, of human cognition, and would the law recognize them as as persons uh, yep. like anything else? I think unfortunately the answer is we have to figure it out. Yeah, um, I think the answer is probably think- yes. Um, and I think you know, but but it's going to be a matter of of how whether whether that form of life can can reasonably convince us through some sort of communication that 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 it that it has uh, you know what we consider a soul that it has some sort of yep. consciousness and self awareness and you know there's some argument that elephants perhaps do based on some of the morning rituals they do but I, I think it would boil down to whether what it is can communicate to us in a way that that we we understand yeah. and and. I think we bump into the idea that basically if it came down to it, the court would have to address, and this is why it's a relevant question for what we talked about here, they'd have to look at what the law says and basically apply it to what is this, which basically is, you know, if an elephant drafted a complaint, they would have to treat the complaint as being legit. Mm -hmm. The issue with it is is that I don't think an elephant could draft a complaint. Um, And so I think that's the kind of thing you get into with it, was so much of the answer to this question is we don't know how they'd treat it because they haven't had to. Yeah. You know, if a Neanderthal person walked in to the courtroom and said, I'm entitled to these legal rights, they would have to decide if they are. And when we look at it and say there's things that are like Homo sapiens that have sort of things like that, we also have to recognize that for a while, you know, at least the United States courts, there there are you know, Homo sapiens that were not recognized as having human rights. Yeah. So, you know, it, it can change as well, you know, as to what you have with it. But I think that's the thing is you'd end up with a court having to really look at it and say, what is the answer to this question? It's a question we have to do. And under the law of purview, it's, it's the uh, what is the question of first impression. Yeah. Well, under the same token, you know, an elephant can't draft a complaint, neither can an infant. Yeah. But so we have procedures in place to allow those who are incapacitated to, to have others advance their rights for them, which kind of came up on our episode about um, uh, the monkey selfie, right? The, the monkey can't advocate for itself. And that's one of the arguments that, that the animal rights people make is just because they don't have the cognitive ability to advocate for themselves doesn't mean they don't have rights that should be recognized. Uh, and, and, you know, in the situation of an alien life or a different hominid species, those are... I mean, it's it's a really interesting question, and I think it would really boil down to, as a threshold matter, can can this form of life communicate yep. to us in a way that conveys sapience? If not, is there some other evidence that they should be afforded personhood status? For lack of a better term, it's the Turing test. Yeah, I mean, it kind of we, is. We'd end up with something that effectively is a Turing test. Um, Which then goes back to AI. At some point, if the AI can demonstrate self-awareness, yeah. um, d- does it take on personhood? Yeah, and those I think that you know when you get into this type of things, the biggest problem you get into with this in the law is when you say, "Hey, you know, how would it, how, how human would a person alien need to be before you recognize as a person under the law?" I'd need to have the alien in front of me and then determine whether or not what it is. That's the way the court would look at it's it. It's the classic case of the answer to every legal question. Well, yeah. it depends. It depends, <laughs> but it's also the. When the alien is there, we can answer the question for that alien. Yeah. We can't answer it outright to say this is what the, an alien that would go one way or would go the other way because it's just too open of a question. Yeah. And, and I think that's the answer to it is, is that they're too open of a question. And these are issues that courts struggle with. I mean, they're the hard. monkey selfie case is continuing. There's been discussions of the fact yeah, that there's still going. more still going on with the monkey selfie case. It gives us the example of exactly what, who is it that can bring a lawsuit? I mean, that's this is, as much as the monkey selfie case is kind of silly, even though we're talking about you know, silly patents and stuff like that, it is questioning value, very valuable legal questions to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And it's there is an important thing associated with that of just examining these issues and saying, where does the court fall? And as, as that, where does the government and where do the people fall? Yeah. We had one more question about favorite lawyer movies, but we're running really long, so why don't we save that to, uh, to another episode? We can do that. I mentioned a few at the beginning, too. So <laughs> Yeah, we already kind of covered it. Uh, okay, so uh, there's the music, and it is time to go. If you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGG podcast at gmail.com you can also talk to us on our facebook page search lawyers guide to the galaxy and find us there you can subscribe to this podcast find us on itunes soundcloud spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please give us a review we really appreciate those it helps other people find us i can also be found on twitter at benjamin siders and you can talk to kirk at kirk dmn Next time, we're going to discuss um, another interesting topic, the concept of IP in a culture. This has come up and recently. And we don't mean IP within the culture. We mean IP on the culture. Yeah, like the culture 
itself is the IP. And uh, th- this kind of came up. I was I play Civilization VI, and there's been some recent discussion on the on the uh, you know the web boards uh, about the way that the Cree Nation was depicted as a civilization in that game, and and the extent to which uh, you know these these cultures should have IP rights in and how they're represented. So we're going to talk about uh, that sort of on an ap- academic level. We don't want to get into uh, you know side taking on a policy point, but just how, you know how IP concepts apply uh, or don't apply is more likely case to uh, the concept of a culture. And assuming Kurt can see it, we may go over our, our solo predictions. <laughs> I'm going to try to see it, so my son's already said to the kid he wants to see it. So. Awesome. After that, we got a couple different topic ideas we're bouncing around, and we'll probably talk about those next time, too. So that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 